Culinary Institute of Child Nutrition proudly welcomes you to The Mix-Up, an iBytes production. I'm your host, Chef Patrick Garmong, mixing it up with culinary experts from the child nutrition community. Welcome back to The Mix-Up. I am Chef Patrick Garmong, pleased to be back and joining you on The Mix-Up podcast. Um, Chef Garrett's been great and filled in for me for a while, but I am back in the saddle and I am so excited today to welcome Chef Ryan Yarnell from Metro Nashville Public Schools. Welcome, Chef. Thank you. We're so happy to have you here. Um, you have a large school district. Can you tell us a little bit about, about it? <laughs> <laughs> sure. It, it is a, a significantly large school district. Um, we have about a 146 sites this school year. Wow. Um, we do about 85,000 meals a day. And um, that's all done at the site level. There's no central kitchen to help us with any kind of unitized meal components. Um, wow. There's about 800 employees and um, there's one of me. <laughs> <laughs> and if I'm not mistaken, one of your primary responsibilities is uh, training. Is that correct? Yes, sir. That is absolutely correct. So with that many sites and that many staff members, how are you able to conduct training and spread it out across that broad base of um, constituents, if you will. Sure. Yeah, it, it took a lot of um, innovation. Um, I've got about five years with Metro uh, Public Schools. And in the beginning, when I first came on board, it was, you know, you visit one site at a time and um, get them up to speed across the school year. And I just, I wasn't happy with that progress um, with as large of a district as we are. And so I've actually created a, uh, kind of an internal YouTube channel and it's videos that, uh, show our equipment with our employees, um, how we're supposed to operate. And it's an unlisted video. So we don't give that to the general public. Um, and it, it's really worked out quite well because you can reach the entire district, um, in just a matter of moments. And the nice thing is that we have a lot of different um, languages represented in our district. Uh, oh, it's over 100 languages. So there's a language barrier with training. And if you take a video, even with the sound off, you can teach somebody without having to speak their language. Right. So they're able to really great. That's awesome. Yeah. They're able to see the skill set and practice and, and be able to apply that. That's that's a great strategy. Um, adult learners learn in a multitude of different ways. And that visual cue oftentimes is uh, imperative to help our folks, um, both that do speak English and those that don't. So hats off yeah. to you guys for putting that together. Um, well, and it creates a library you can always refer back to and uh, onboard new employees. It's, a, it's an incredibly versatile tool. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think onboarding, especially right now, is one of the biggest struggles um, out there for child nutrition programs, uh, the big staff turnover with uh, COVID folks retiring, folks just uh, choosing to leave the space or folks in and out because of illness. How has your staffing levels been affected um, over the last, I guess, two and a half years now we're into this? Sure. Um, well, it, it's been dramatic to, to say the least. Um, we are in keeping with the rest of the nation and um, our normal staff level is about 800 employees. And right now we're sitting at about 700 and wow. those vacancies are felt. I can tell you that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm sure you've got managers and other employees uh, filling in multiple roles, trying to get meals out to serve the students. And um, you guys serve quite a few meals. So that's a, <laughs> that's a large undertaking. Um, 
what do you think has been the biggest takeaway from this uh, tumultuous pandemic era in helping you and your program move forward? Yeah, it's it's been interesting. It's it's not all negative, and um, you know some would argue with that. But um, one of the anecdotal references I'll provide when we were serving um, kind of unitized meals in the the summer during the the heat of COVID, uh, we were able to kind of reshape our menus and our components uh, to facilitate that operation, and it's carried over as a positive into our uh, super snack program. So basically, it's a cold supper uh, okay. program, and we wouldn't have been ready to launch that type of operation without having first gone through, um, you know, the the rigorous test. I would say of our program through the the meals being sent home to students when they're all home in quarantine, stuff like that. Um, so you know, it, it's been really good, and from an ownership standpoint, with our our site level staff. Uh, they know how hard they're working every day. And it's actually developed a sense of pride, a sense of ownership. Like we were there during COVID, we're getting these kids fed and they actually appreciate it. Uh, Not only the students, but the staff as well. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great takeaway. Um, Yeah. I mean, I've I've definitely heard anecdotal reports of uh, learning a whole new level of writing SOPs and implementing new processes and procedures. (laughs) And, um, you know, you could almost take away that, well, we've always done it this way because no one's ever operated in this type of environment. So it really uh, helped staffs to learn to recognize that change, although uncomfortable, is inevitable, but it's also doable. It's manageable and it opens a lot of eyes. So Mm -hmm. um, I think that's one of the positives I've heard from this, this, uh, tumultuous time we've been living in. Let me ask you a question. I've been seeing a lot of uh, posts recently on some of the different Facebook groups for child nutrition programs and Instagram. And there's a lot of folks out there asking, is now the right time to hire a chef for their district? So with that in mind and understand that you're one person in a massive district, what do you think the benefits are even for smaller districts in bringing a chef on board to their program? Well, I, I'll tell you, it, it's it's imperative. I would say I, I wish that all school districts could have the the, the facility that a, a chef brings to the the program, and and really, it's not really so much of a creative outlet um, because we do have such rigorous standards with USDA. Yeah, um, it's it's more of a mechanical knowledge, and I, I say that because. It, anybody could pick out something that looks good to put on a school menu following the, the guidelines, but to really present it well, to pick out the right piece of equipment to effectively produce different uh, meal components, uh, building the workflow in a kitchen, uh, even to the point of teaching new staff that may have zero experience, you really need that chef working knowledge. Um, and I think some people get mis you know, misguided that a chef is going to be, you know, putting the fancy garnishes on all the pans of food. And that's right. just, you know, we may do that granted, but it's so much more. And, you know, the, the multiple hats that are kind of encompassed in a chef's hat, um, if you will, is really where I think chefs do so well in school nutrition, because there's so much going on in a kitchen. It's not just about heat and serve. It's right. about workflow. It's about food safety. And, um, you know, outside of the, the professional culinary world, 
there's not a lot of job titles that can come in and offer everything that a chef does. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think you hit it right on the head that, yeah, the, the food styling, the, the uh, menuing, those things are all great, but having someone that's able to go in and look at it from a logistical standpoint and um, create workflow efficiencies within their program, coach and mentor staff and train them up to have the skill sets needed, um, having that that kind of expert eye in food production, ensuring food safety at every turn is it's critical. Um, so before you came to child nutrition, what was your level of experience in the, in the culinary field? Sure. Um, I actually first got into restaurants way back in high school. I actually started at Waffle House. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> My brother and I were flipping omelets before school and after. Um, <laughs> Had a five-year stint with the uh, United States Navy. I was not okay. cooking with the Navy, but that's a for another channel. <laughs> um, <laughs> after an after I was honorably discharged in two thousand nine, uh, I actually was just looking for a quick job to jump back into the workforce, and I went to uh, Bonefish Grill and mm -hmm. in, in Memphis, Memphis, Tennessee, and was able to get a good working relationship with my kitchen manager, who was a Johnson and Wales graduate. Okay. And so the Johnson Wales graduate talked me into using my post 9-11 GI bill to go to the Culinary Institute of America in uh, New York. So that was a, a quick, you know, in a nutshell, how I got into the culinary world. And then after culinary school, I uh, moved back to Nashville and started working on uh, restaurants on, on our kind of Broadway downtown area with a company yeah. called a uh, strategic hospitality and they have a, a myriad of different properties. Now I would bounce around kind of like a, like a tour, not really a traveling chef that kind of knows a little bit of everything Yeah, and um, was opening new restaurants and um, helping polish old concepts and um, was with them for several years. And right before I worked for Metro, I had the opportunity to do a brand refresh on a 40 year old, restaurant in Nashville called the Sutler Saloon uh, with a company called A-Ray Hospitality. And uh, that was fantastic because we were able to go in and keep some of that old uh, grace that had been built into the, the restaurant, the history, capture that, but bring it up to the, you know, the modern expectation. So it, it's been a, a whirlwind of activities in Nashville. Um, I've been able to open a concession stand in our new baseball park in Germantown a couple of years ago, but we were offering restaurant food <laughs> oh, wow. concession stand. So if you could imagine that, uh, it was quite the adventure. Yeah. Well, it sounds like, you know, your, your previous work experience, especially with the uh, bouncing from restaurant to restaurant, helping them establish best practices and, and achieve high levels really help prepare you for being able to work at Metro and be able to work with so many different sites delivering high quality food to students. And um, that, that experience is something that you, you can't buy. You just, That's it's, right. you know, you have to, you have to go through those, those trials and tribulations of working in, you know, multi-unit facilities to understand how to tackle the things that need to be addressed um, with staff and, and uh, changing, changing mindsets and changing hearts. So, you know, when you came on board, was there reluctance with the staff on, oh, here comes a chef. He's going to be the white knight and try to try to change everything we're doing. You know, we've been doing this for X number of years. I'm not going to listen. Or 
were they pretty open or kind of a mixed review? What was your experience with staff? <laughs> it was a, it was a fun learning experience, I think on both sides. So, um, honestly, I've spent the entire first year, uh, under the title of chef, just getting to know my sites, getting to meet the site managers, uh, working alongside the staff, um, before I really tried to do anything chef related to our menus and so on and so forth, because the other transition that was occurring was moving from, you know, let's say the civilian side of menus and restaurants to child nutrition, which we're still eating food, but it is a paradigm shift to say the least. Right. So um, I'm, I'm proud to say that I have a good working relationship with every single one of our site managers. And I look forward to meeting every new staff member we get. Um, it, you know, we use the term that we're one big family here, dysfunctional though we may be. Right. <laughs> and, um, and that's okay. We, um, we treat it as such and it helps us stay unified. That's awesome. I love that approach that you took about taking that first year and really getting to know your people, understanding their sites, understand the logistics, the challenges, barriers, and not just coming in and, uh, you know, Hey, we're going to change this and you need to adapt to it. I think that sometimes that's a big fear, um, folks have when looking to bring on a chef is that they're, um, nervous about these broad sweeping changes that are going to be, um, brought in and that viewpoint of chefs that come from, you know, folks watching TV and seeing folks like Gordon Ramsay or, um, you know, some of these, these judging competitions or Alex Gornichelli is just staring down a contestant. Like that's, I mean, you know, there are chefs out there like that and, uh, you know, that's fine, but th that's also for TV. And I think that sometimes we get a bad rap that we're ego maniacal attitude driven. So your approach, I think is one that really, lends itself to success um, moving into this space and working in child nutrition programs. Well, and it was the same in restaurants. You know, you've got to assess the skill level and the skill sets of your you know, various employees and, and find a way to leverage them and then train the deficit. Yeah, absolutely. What would you say to, uh, you know, outside of getting to know your staff, a, a helpful tool for a chef coming into this space um, from, you know, hotels or restaurant or even military um, coming in to work in child nutrition, what would, what would be a few tips that you'd want to give them to help them uh, succeed, especially in their first couple of years? Sure. Um, I remember the biggest uh, hurdle for me to get past in that transition from non-child nutrition to child nutrition was the equivalencies. Um, and so I was basically mentored uh, by our, our registered dietitian. And I remember the first time she was telling me about our turkey ham that I think it's, you needed like two and a half ounces to get two ounces equivalent. And I just wrinkled my eyebrows and looked at her and I said, what in the world are you talking about? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and so just getting familiar with those USDA guidelines and, and not necessarily go in to get your, your registered dietitian uh, degree or anything like that, but at least having enough working knowledge, um, to speak the language, to understand why you have to um, seek out certain products in the K-12 uh, market segment, because you, you can't approach child nutrition like you would um, a restaurant on your downtown street. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, um, yeah, I mean, just putting together a recipe at times can be extraordinarily challenging, changing that mindset from 
restaurant industry to child nutrition, the level of detail that you need to put into each of those is, um, is, uh, can be a challenge at first as well. That's, that's great advice, learning how to navigate and manage those, those regulations as you move forward. Do you play much of a role in the menu planning for your district? Do you work with the dietitian? Do you roll out the menus? Like how, how does that work with between the, um, in your team? Yeah, it's, um, it's actually become a kind of unique expression of that working relationship um, with my time here with Metro. Um, our, our registered dietitian, her name is Jessica Thomas. Uh, that was the, the woman that helped mentor me into um, the child nutrition chef knowledge. Mm-hmm. And what she and I talk about with vendors and different chefs and uh, different uh, directors and different uh school districts is that we, we kind of operate like an architect and engineer relationship. And so, you know, she has her wheelhouse of incredibly detailed dietitian, registered dietitian knowledge. And I'm on the other side, kind of looking at it from a, a workflow standpoint and a palatability standpoint. Um, she actually, if you're familiar with the term super taster, <laughs> she's a super <laughs> taster. I'm not. And so a lot of times, um, we balance each other incredibly well, but it's a fun dynamic that I hope a lot of other districts pick up because I don't think we would be where we are today with our current menu structure if we didn't have that working dynamic um, and shared language and shared knowledge uh, between chef and registered dietitian. That's, I think, an imperative to a successful program. Yeah, that's a that's a great strategy you all are using and um yeah, hats off to you all because I, I mean, I've heard different stories about how those relationships have worked. So I'm glad you all have been able to make one that's successful. What What would you think um, makes it the most successful for you? I mean, is it just personalities and, and understanding each other's, <laughs> you know, how, how to get along? Or I know I've talked to some chefs that, you know, are colleagues and they really struggle with their district dietitian um, because they, maybe they're both alphas and, you know, their idea is the best, or maybe just some, some different uh, <laughs> viewpoints on, on how things should be implemented. So what strategies would you lend to someone who's maybe struggling both ways, right? A dietitian, chef, chef to dietitian. Yeah. Well, it, I, I would, I would venture to guess that those positions, chef and registered dietitians are typically both alpha type personalities. <laughs> and, you know, I think that the, the greater good can be accomplished by a little bit of discretion, you know, letting, letting one take the lead when the other doesn't have it. Um, and, you know, if you can't balance that work dynamic, then you're not realizing your, your, the full potential of what you could create. And so, you know, learning to work with the dietitian uh, was incredibly difficult because I was used to running an entire restaurant with a general manager. Mm-hmm. And in school nutrition, that's not typically how the pros- process works. It's uh, It's got a lot more moving pieces and a lot more um, <laughs> alpha personalities. Uh, you right. typically will have a, a director and an assistant director to deal with and principals, and there's a lot more going on. So, you know, if you can start with balancing that dietitian and chef dynamic, uh, it really does carry through uh, to the rest of your organization. Yeah, that's awesome. So when, when you all are sitting down to look at your menu for the next school year and that kind of uh, season's coming upon us here pretty quickly with uh, open surveys <laughs> for USDA foods and 
um, kind of identifying what next steps are going to be. How do you how do you sit down with the dietitian and start mapping out that menu? Do you come to the table with new ideas that you've seen at trade shows or um, experience just dining out or you know talking with students about what they like? How how do you guys come up with these new recipes, new menu items? What's that sure. dynamic look like? It it's it's never ending and it, it never slows down. Um, it's there's not really a season or a time of the year that we necessarily really focus on it. Obviously you have to submit uh, paperwork and whatnot, but we are constantly looking uh, at trade shows. I personally will sit down with students in the cafeteria just to talk to them and say, Hey, what do you like? What do you not like? Um, we'll listen to different webinars for trends uh, coming and going. And um, really the best information that we get throughout the school year is direct face-to-face -face contact with students. And, uh, one of the favorite stories I, I enjoy telling is we have one of our uh, high schools where, you know, we had put out our, our menus for the year and uh, they were being, being very successful with maybe a few low participation days. And I remember a, a student coming up towards the end of one of the lunch periods and he kind of looked at the offerings and wrinkled his nose and was starting to walk away. And I said, Hey, you know, young man, come, come over here. Look, what's, what's going on? What, what can we get you? And he said, well, you know, none of this really looks very good. And I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm sorry. What, what would you like to see? And he said, well, I'd like to see some lasagna. And I was like, <laughs> lasagna, really? Okay. Um, why do you want to see lasagna? Like, why does that ring a bell for you for school lunch? He said, well, you know, my, my grandmother used to make me lasagna and um, that's really a comfort food. And I've had a hard day and um, I think that'd be really nice. And, you know, long story short, we've had incredible success uh, bringing on a, a rolled up like kind of single serving lasagna. And um, that's how we build our menus. That's where we get our best information and our biggest movers. It's um, supplemented by all of the other outlets like food shows and webinars and um, seeing what best practices are in other districts. But I'll, mm -hmm. I'll tell you, really getting to know your target market, uh, your students is, is the best, best advice, best thing I could tell anybody to do out there. That's awesome. Earlier, you were mentioning that you have a, a very diverse population, a lot of different languages. Um, how have you been able to reflect that in your menus, making sure that you're serving culturally appropriate foods that resonate with the different um, communities within your, your program? Yeah, it, it's an incredible challenge. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, there, I, I, I will say there is kind of a, a limit to how well we can translate Mm -hmm. um, you know, different ethnic dishes. But what we've done in the past is offer, um, we've had falafel on the menu. Mm -hmm. We've had, uh, we've tried to create our own tzatziki sauce. Nice. And, you know, those things kind of run their course um, and the students appreciate it, but it's never going to be like what you're used to at home. Right. Um, one of the current offerings that we've discovered we needed to offer um, if you're familiar with the, the Spanish dish, uh, arroz con pollo, it's a uh, chicken. Oh, and yeah. rice. Well, we're not going to make it like granny does. Right. Right. Granted, right. Yeah. But we've, we've got a, a diverse population that exists in demographic pockets. Right. Mm -hmm. And so any given, let's say casserole day, um, will give the manager the discretion to either offer, let's say Turkey Tetrazzini, Turkey ham and Mac, or this chicken and, uh, green chilies is the way we do it with some rice. Um, the, the, the translated version of arroz con pollo. Right. So 
if, if, if you're in a district that has a high Hispanic population, you'll have that dish that you can offer. Whereas if that's the, uh, the opposite of what you have in your, your site, your school, then you could also menu uh, turkey tetrazzini, which is, you know, a 40 year old recipe out of Nashville. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know it was a Nashville uh, recipe. So that's awesome. Yeah. We, uh, my mother-in-law used to make a really great tetrazzini after uh, Thanksgiving and use all leftover turkey up in a great way. Um, oh, yeah. And my wife's favorite dish is Oros Compoyo. So um, nice. Yeah. You're, you're really. I should say Nashville didn't necessarily invent turkey tetrazzini, okay. but you would have thought we had as much as we consume. <laughs> okay. Okay. Fair enough. That's awesome. So you mentioned that you had a casserole day. So do you guys menu plan around kind of thematic days within your cycle menu? Like this is going to be a kettle day or that's a term I've heard some districts use where, you know, they're doing a lot of ground beef. So it might be the one week their kettle days, uh, taco meat. The next it's, um, they're doing that same kettle meat for, um, like a chili or, um, spaghetti sauce or, you know, different, different things. Do you follow that kind of, uh, you know, Mondays or a grill day, Tuesday kettle day or, or some format like that? We, or We have in the past, um, we, we've done several different kind of themed menu cycles. Uh, we've done meatless Mondays. Uh, we've had, uh, we even talked about doing taco Tuesdays, but we needed more <laughs> than just Tuesdays because they're popular. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but what we've found that works best is uh, unique days, uh, more and more variety. And, you know, there's a lot to our advantage because of our size, but what we've found that really works well for us uh, from a participation standpoint is um, it, it's basically a 20 day cycle where there's 10 days that repeat twice okay. and there's variations of those days. And, and some of the flexibilities with our casseroles is also available um, on our Asian uh, menu day, which would be, you know, I think we have seven yeah, seven different types of chicken that the manager can order. And so even within a cycle menu, there's further uh, variety available by menu day left to the preference of the site manager, which is going to know their students better than anybody else. Right. No, that's a great strategy, especially in, you know, a large district with such a diverse population. You have those pockets of different um, <clears throat> different populations. So that, that's a great way to approach that. That's one that I've actually never thought of. Um, so I, I'd imagine too, having that flexibility has really been helpful during this, um, kind of supply chain crisis that we're, um, having where, where they can say, okay, product A isn't here, but product B is available. So we're going to go ahead and do that today. Has that been true for you all? Well, it, it's kind of a double-edged sword, to be honest. Um, we've had some success with kind of what you're mentioning where, you know, we can rob Peter to pay Paul, so to speak. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but what it's come down to in a lot of different cases is the variety just doesn't make it to our, our um, broadline distributor. And okay. so if, if that's the case, uh, we do have to kind of pull back sometimes on the variety until those product lines pick back up. Uh, or in some cases are replaced by a new product altogether. Yeah. What would have been some of those uh, challenging products for you all during this time? Well, and, and, and again, part of it's the, the specific products and part of it may be just our, our size, um, mm -hmm. but we've, I, I don't think anything 
has crossed the board uh, that hasn't been affected. Um, but the okay. most dire has been uh, breakfast items. Uh, we have, you know, repeatedly cleared out our broadline distributor of cereal. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, you know, we've had issues uh, getting, you know, enough ground beef available. Mm. Um, at one point, we've actually purchased ground beef from our produce supplier. Didn't even know that was a, an option. <laughs> oh, interesting. Yeah, right. <laughs> but it's it's interesting and actually been very beneficial to realize uh, the previously unrealized flexibility of our uh, vendors and uh, various distributors. Yeah, I mean, I, I've definitely been hearing some some stories. Yeah, similar where a produce companies carrying things that you never would have thought they would have carried, and and uh, mm-hmm. you know, vice versa, and and tapping into different supply chains and creating new new relationships that uh, previously um, some folks just weren't known to the child nutrition space. So, so being more creative and, and creating those relationships has been highly beneficial for so many. Um, oh, did you have something? Yeah, I was just thinking, it, and it's also helped smaller companies and new companies kind of break into the market um, because they're not competing uh, the same way that they were pre-COVID. Right. No, Absolutely. Absolutely. So do you, each of your sites get their own deliveries then? I mean, nothing's done warehouse yes. or wow. That's uh, I, I, uh, <laughs> I'm trying to imagine writing that bid out right now. And that seems like a big one. Um, it, it takes a real big team here at central office to get everything put together. Oh, I'd imagine. Um, I, I can just imagine phones ringing there too with uh you know, X number of sites like, Hey, they got what they needed over, over, you know, this, this middle school and we didn't get anything. How can we make this work? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. What a, what a challenge for you all. Um, so what do your um, typical, like, are you guys, uh, is your program more heat and serve? Is it speed scratch? Is it full scratch? Is it kind of a mix of all those different components to make it all work? What, what does it look like for you all right now? Yeah, sure. It, it's definitely been a mix. Um, it's it's a mixture of speed scratch and it's a um, more heat and serve items that we have now. Uh, one out of necessity, and two out of it really has created a lot of flexibility uh, because of our fluctuations in staff. Mm-hmm. So if every if everything on the menu is scratch or speed scratch, uh, and and you're down a hundred employees, that really creates a problem. And so. Again, it's another positive takeaway from the effects of, of what COVID has forced us to learn and, and in the sense that we've, we do have more heat and serve items on the menu now uh, from those days where we were sending the meals home in school buses. Um, and it's really kind of helped us carry through uh, now that we have students back in person, uh, but not all of our staff returned uh, to the workforce. Right. Yeah. Um, do you, did you all think that after things have kind of quelled, settled down, whatever, whatever terminology, I know, I know there's no normal to go back to, right? I mean, no. but, um, once some of the, the furried, uh, logistical issues have calmed down that you'll kind of head back towards a little bit more of a scratch, quick scratch base, or, um, do you think kind of heat and serve is, um, going to continue to be a, a part of your program just you know it, it's interesting ball, i uh, guess <laughs> right yeah i'm, I'm reading yeah. the future here yeah. uh, the, the one the one sign that i do see very clearly written on the wall is 
it, we have the luxury of, of having quite a few site managers that have over 30 years of experience. And that dates back to, at least in our school district, to, you know, making your own hamburger buns, yeast rolls, cinnamon rolls, uh, casseroles, with or without a recipe necessarily, <laughs> um, at least to the specificity that it is now under the uh, USDA guidelines. But, right. um, you know, I, I, and what I see now with the current labor uh, pool that we're, we're hiring, uh, that skill level or that desire to um, understand cooking is, is not the same. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's just not like it used to be. And that's expected as time goes forward. But I, I think that the heat and serve uh, is going to continue to grow. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think we'll be um, spinning our own pizza dough in the big stand mixers anytime soon. Right. Um, right. You know, uh, yeah. and it's just, it's not the same workforce. It's not the same environment, but that doesn't change the mission to, to feed our kids. Right. No, absolutely. Um, did, did your sites have salad bars prior to COVID? I'm, I'm curious to gauge how different folks are um, tackling reintroducing salad bars or are they going to be abandoning them? Um, are they going to be so, hitting you at a different level? Yeah, we, we love our salad bars. Uh, we have huge, huge participation numbers just through salad bars. And um, we had them pre-COVID. Uh, obviously, we weren't sending home salads during the, the unitized meals when students were at home. Mm-hmm. Um, but since returning to in-person school, yes, we have um, revisited salad bars um, much in the same way we did pre-COVID. Um, at least that's how we're handling it here in Nashville. Um, we do see more of a kind of sealed chef salad type container rather than the, the build your own salad bar. But okay. we do still have... Um, most of our large high schools offering an entire serving line of just a salad bar, um, you know, five, six different meat options. You know, you, you can imagine, uh, you know, maybe in some people's mind, the old Ruby Tuesdays right. uh, salad bar. We, yeah. we have that um, presently. Okay. It's, uh, it's, it's really successful. That's awesome. Were there, I know some listeners are probably thinking what kind of different precautions did your health department require you know, to, to reintroduce those, you know, during this, this COVID era, were there many or, um, any, any big um, changes? I guess? Sure. Yeah. We definitely have <laughs> danced around some changes. Um, <laughs> when we were first getting students back, uh, we served every single meal in a closed three compartment clamshell. Okay. And there was a point in time, I couldn't quote it right now off the top of my head, but where we, we shifted away from that and kind of back to full service, um, depending on the grade level, you know, students serving themselves on an open tray mm-hmm. and um, the, the similar with staff serving students. Um, it was kind of just like back to normal. Uh, dare I use that word, but right, um, yeah. <laughs> the biggest difference was everybody's in a mask. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Also, were there any <clears throat> extra cleaning protocols on, on things like tongs or serving utensils Were those I've heard where some districts are like changing them out, like almost at, between classes, you know, especially in like grade schools where, you know, all the third graders that come through and then they change out all the utensils for fourth grade or something, just different ideas well, I've heard. Has that been an issue for you guys at all? It hasn't really been an issue. Um, we're, we're thankful to have a, a wonderful program uh, of, of different chemicals. It's a company called SFS Pack, and uh, they basically come on site and fill you up with everything you need 
and as well as uh, the buckets and spray bottles and all you really have to supply is uh, the, the single-use towels. Um, but once that's in place, uh, our staff was already in the habit of, you know, wiping down serving lines in between classes. Mm. Um, we have a sanitizer product that we use. Uh, we have um, a germicidal spray that we kind of close down the, the serving lines with at the end of the day and then wipe them down before service in the morning. So, you know, the good habits were already there and those were uh, sufficient uh, to to kind of mitigate any type of, um, you know, viruses or bacteria that would be on the serving line in the first place, uh, including COVID. No, that's great. That's awesome. It's, it, I mean, it, it's a testament to the level of training you're doing with your staff before this even happened to make sure that food safety was at the forefront of everything that you all do. Um, I, mm-hmm. I used to stress with my staff in almost a joking way, but but in reality, it's, you know, you can make up for a meal that didn't taste great. You can make up for bad customer service. But if you make someone sick, you've lost all trust. And that's right. um, I think that's uh, it's something that we need to always keep at the forefront as we're, we're serving students, especially, you know, I mean, it's one of the largest uh, continuously operating um, <laughs> restaurants in any area. Right. So um, that's right. Making sure those food service or food safety protocols are in place is huge. Um so have you all, uh, I, I'm jumping around here a little bit, so I apologize, but I keep thinking back on, you know, being down a hundred staff members and the challenges that that presents to you all. Have you been able, has your organization been able to come up with a strategy on how to start recruiting, replacing, rehiring those positions? Or are you finding that you're able to operate efficiency with some lower numbers? What, what's that looking like for your team? Sure. We can definitely continue operating. Uh, we've had to kind of shuffle around existing staff members mm-hmm. uh, to kind of, you know, balance the load, so to speak. Um, and I think because of our size, we will always be hiring mm-hmm. um, regardless of what the environmental circumstances provide. Um, so, you know, for, for us in, in Metro Nashville, it's it's a familiar pace to you know, constantly be onboarding new employees, training them up. Um, so that part hasn't really rocked us um, that hard. A uh, hundred employees is a lot. Yeah. What that translates into is what I was talking about earlier with, you know, they know they're working harder and they own it. They're proud of it. That's awesome. Um, how, what, what is your district's, and it may vary between um, job duties or roles, but Typically, when you bring on someone to onboard them, um, I know that's a question that's out there a lot. Like, you know, folks are losing staff and they're trying to bring new ones in and get them up to speed. What is your onboarding program look like? Sure. Um, it's it's brief in the beginning. Uh, we have a, a short kind of orientation. They come to central office and, you know, deal with all the paperwork and W-9 mm-hmm. type stuff. Um, but what we do is try to get them very quickly out to the site. And uh, we have an expectation that our site managers are going to kind of take them under their wing, start them off on something simple, like uh, putting fruit out each day. Mm -hmm. And um, again, maybe that's a luxury of our size, but, um, (laughs) and they slowly kind of graduate up uh, based on ability and experience to, you know, the vegetable cooking station, the meat cooking station. um, And eventually they'll all have the opportunity to sign up for the manager intern class um, so we have all of our site managers go through a, a rigorous uh, intern program uh, with varying lengths of time based on necessity of, of uh, placement. Mm-hmm. But 
um, you know, we'll take them through and kind of give a deep dive on every, you know, major section of school nutrition so that they're ready to really take on, you know, our sites that have uh, several thousand students. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's cool. I, I really like that you're, um, you've developed a program to grow internally your, your, your staff and have them take ownership of their kitchen. It seems that the managers have um, quite a bit of ownership of, of how their sites are run and a little bit of autonomy um, with some menu choices and things like that. So I, I think it uh, lends itself to being a more exciting job than just ensuring people are implementing the, the menu cast from upon high at the district level <laughs> and, and having that ownership of their site, I think is really cool and, and helps, helps folks, uh, just, yeah, I mean, I guess ownership's really where it's at, right? Taking ownership and pride in what they're doing. That's cool. Yeah, there has to be that ownership um, because the district has to offer or has to operate, you know, autonomously, like you mentioned, um, you know, try and micromanage 146 schools with 800 employees. It's, <laughs> right. it's not yeah. going to go well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a surefire recipe for disaster. Well, Chef, I cannot thank you enough for spending this, your time with me today. Um, I'm sure you're exceptionally busy. Um, so I just want to thank you so much. I, I've learned a lot. Um, I hope our listeners have learned a lot about what Metro Nashville Public Schools is doing um, and uh, just that role of a chef and how important it is to um, implement success. So thank you so much for spending time with me today. Absolutely. My pleasure. All right, folks, join us on the next mix up. Until then, I am Chef Patrick Garmong, reminding you to wash your hands and stay safe out there. Join us next time as we continue to mix it up with culinary experts from the child nutrition community. I've been your host, Chef Patrick Garmong from the Culinary Institute of Child Nutrition. Hey, don't forget to wash your hands. This project has been funded at least in part with federal funds from the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Food and Nutrition Service through an agreement with the Institute of Child Nutrition at the University of Mississippi. The contents of this publication do not necessarily reflect the views or policies of the U.S. Department of Agriculture, nor does mention of trade names, commercial products, or organizations imply endorsement by the U.S. government. The University of Mississippi is an EEO AA Title VI, Title IX, Section 504, ADA, ADEA employer. In accordance with federal law and U.S. Department of Agriculture policy, this institution is prohibited from discriminating on the basis of race, color, national origin, sex, age, or disability. To file a complaint of discrimination, write USDA Director, Office of Civil Rights, Room 326W, Whitney Building, 1400 Independence Avenue, Southwest, Washington, D.C., 202-509410, or call 202-720-5964. USDA is an equal opportunity provider and employer.